All of the magic you're about to see is performed without trick photography of any kind. Hello once again everybody and welcome to the Bixby Boys, the internet's premier Bill Bixby fan cast, your source for Bill Bixby news and reviews and opinion. Uh, my name is Matthew Porter. This is where I get to drape a sheet over you, We say, say some very you know, mystical sounding things and suddenly the, the other you with the other intro will pop up, right? I don't know what you mean by other intro. Clearly, this is we are the the number one Bill Bixby fan cast. <laughs> the, the scariest thing is that either thanks to our two in a row, you're right, or we're wrong, and we're gonna get one really, really upset Bixby fan cast showing up at us trying to take their crown. There's two ways I can see this going, and they're both wacky. Maybe that's what we need. We need a great, a really good podcast feud going on to to boost our our download numbers. Uh, that 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 actually would help. Okay, yeah, yep. I can get behind this. Yeah, Bixby boys, let's do this. Because I, I believe it is uh, either uh, an FCC or an FTC regulation that if you have two Bill Bixby oriented episodes in a row, you are required to identify yourself as a Bixby fancast. It's kind of like announcing the fact that you're you're making a show targeted towards children with advertising in it. That's right. Okay, yeah. Okay, I guess okay, I should Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> I guess I should admit that this is the the IWMP, the uh, the Intermillennium Media Project. But once again, uh, I'm making uh, Ian uh, uh, watch television. Uh, I'm his dad, he's my son, and we again watched a Bill Bixby vehicle from the 1970s. Ironically enough, we watched these in opposite order. This one came before Incredible Hulk. And it was watching the Incredible Hulk that reminded me of this series that I remembered from earlier. And and what an impression it made on me. It's one of those series that I think made a made a, an impression on me, even though I hadn't actually watched much of it. Because I was so young when it was on. It was on like 73, 74 uh, and I know I saw it a bit, but it loomed large in my memory of television from the time. Huh. I, I can definitely understand the influence, and I'm very intrigued to hear what what slice of this is the part you did see, if it's a small sample, because that's important. It is. So the series that we're going to be talking about is The Magician, starring da, da, Bill Bixby. Da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. I did have cool music. That has I, the most awesome cool music. You left out the hyperactive trumpet solo part of the music, I noticed. You're not going to attempt that? <laughs> that is pretty darn close. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a catchy theme that it's got. <laughs> and it's, it's that style which I always describe as someone lit the trumpeter on fire. <laughs> Between that and some Kirby music, it's just like, you are just running with that thing. So we're talking about The Magician, which in some ways means we're talking about three different TV productions. Yeah. Because this was a TV series. It ran for one season, so it had a pilot and then I think 21 episodes. The pilot was a two-hour TV movie, and then they launched the series, but... Right in the middle of that first season, 10 episodes in, they 
significantly changed the format and the style of the show as if somebody had finally been given license to make what they had wanted to make in the first place. So it really it really was like watching three different takes on the same basic concept. Oh yeah, that the TV movie when it started out very much felt like it was going in one direction. It had uh it had a style to it and it had something that definitely could have kept going. But I could see how it might have had trouble if it was trying to be a a regularly airing program with the, some of the ways they set it up in that first one. And the other the second the 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 first half of the actual series reminded me of UFO in a weird way with its cuts from place to place and its use of like establishing shots for where you are. There was something a little bit more like procedural, but someone lost the handbook about they went how they went from thing to thing. And then the the second half of this series has such a different feel. It feels like a a completely other show that just happens to have mostly the same cast, which is just really bizarre. I'm tr- I'm I'm trying to think about your comparison to UFO, but I think it fits. Uh, um, uh, Project, U- Pro- Project me, UFO. Project UFO. That's right. That's an important distinction. Project yes. UFO. You're right. There was something not, if not globe hopping, but at least state hopping. It was moving around so much. And they did rely not necessarily on the time and date stamps that Project UFO sometimes used, but definitely the the, the stock establishing shots. Now we're in Seattle. Now we're in Washington, D.C. It helps when you first establish that your character lives on a plane. And then later on, like halfway through the series, you give him an apartment and instead that that really does change it. It does. And so let's give uh, well, let's share some of the basic setup of this. The premise It stars, of course, Bill Bixby. Pre- prior to this, he was a hit in the sitcom uh, The Courtship of Eddie's Father. Later on in the 70s, of course, he is in uh, The Incredible Hulk. And this for this season in the 70s, he plays. Well, in the pilot, he plays a character called Anthony Dorian, Tony Dorian, who is a a famous and accomplished stage illusionist, a magician. Mm-hmm. He's also insanely wealthy. And we learn this, and he, he's, he's, he's insanely wealthy. He lives, as you mentioned, Ian, he lives on an airplane. And this is not just that he's got a, a little business jet or, you know, a, a Gulfstream. This is a, a in the a pilot at least, a two- or three-engine uh, airliner that has been kitted out inside as a luxurious mobile home. And he has the awesome white Corvette with the California license plate, S-P-I-R-I-T, Spirit. And the plane is also called Spirit. So the this white Corvette is kind of a little shuttlecraft from the plane. He flies somewhere, um, drives the Corvette off the plane to do what he needs to do, drives the Corvette back onto the plane and goes to the next city he needs to be at. It's kind of like if the Green Hornet had instead a, a white color motif and did a lot of stage magic. There's something about this, I have the money and I'll do the right thing kind of huzzah. That's a great comparison, the Green Hornet, you're right. And 
especially with the way they set him up as this, like, I do, I do my, my altruistic act and I've got a lot of money, but I don't seem highly social outside of that. Like he's friendly, he's approachable, but there was something very much, I'm going back to my plane now. I'm done here. Right. He is kind of a glad-handing showbiz guy, but you can tell that he he needs to get away from that sometimes, and he's got his core of close friends. As Jerry, who's his pilot, his mechanic, his major domo, kind of runs his life in some ways. He's got his friend, Max Backstory, I kept thinking. <laughs> and that and, and we learn more about Tony Blake through his friend Max Backstory, who is a like world famous newspaper columnist. And he's not he's not that name yet though. What do you mean? You, you mentioned the name from later in the series. He's Anthony uh, Dorian right now. That's right. He is An- he is Anthony Dorian. Uh, Anthony or Adrian? Anthony, I believe. Anthony Dorian. Yeah, he's yeah. still Tony. Okay, yeah. But yeah, in the pilot, he's Anthony Dorian. And then they changed that later. I think, Ian, you said it was because there was an actual stage magician who went by Anthony Dorian? Yeah, or, or there was some sort of issue with an actual stage magician, and they changed the name. But I just immediately latched onto the fact that they gave him that last name. You have a man with a lot of resources and a lot of wealth and some slight odd things people can't tell about him, but he's being closed off and away from folks. Give him the last name Dorian. I am immediately pulling Portrait of Dorian Gray references here, and I'm immediately assuming that there's a bigger story there they might have t- kept telling with that version of the character that has a little bit more of a like I'm doing this to make up for something or I'm doing this to be better than I had been kind of I am maybe I'm reading in too much on a simple name choice but that that name has a liter- literary reference and history that made me think they are trying to pull from that at very least they wanted that kind of air of uh, of literature involved in the definition of this character, I think. But you're right, That's you don't pick a name like Dorian accidentally, especially for a character who's involved in magic and adventure and stuff. And we do learn from his friend, Max Pom- Pomeroy is the character's name, this columnist, and he is telling somebody else who's just met Tony that Tony spent time in a South American prison for a crime he didn't commit and then broke out, but he also took with him when he escaped this old guy who only lived a few more months, but was so grateful for those months of freedom that he left his enormous fortune to Tony, the guy who helped him escape. And that's why Anthony Dorian has this enormous quantity of money at his disposal. Well, what if the A-Team was instead one guy with lockpicks and a shaved deck of playing cards? And this carries through not just in the pilot, but the first incarnation of the series, those first 10 episodes. It's Tony with his jet airplane home and lots and lots of money. And there isn't as much magic in those earlier episodes. It's called The Magician. It could have just been called The Guy with Lots of Money. Because that's <laughs> there were there was always some gimmicky scene where he used some little magic talent to escape from bad guys or something. But... It was really about him being A, famous, and B, rich. And they keep making the point that he just has this good Samaritan personality. He can't see somebody in trouble and not try to help. It, it makes him James Bond. 
in, in a weird way. He's got the a lot more of his magic had a gadgety element in some ways too. He'd have a thing sometimes, or he'd have a he'd have been practicing so he had something on him at times. True, and that's a good point. It's kind of James Bond. Instead of Q Branch, he had his magic training and equipment. Instead of M giving him assignments, he had his own conscience giving him assignments. But it was very much a super rich guy. Well, he's not going to, you know, Paris and Monte Carlo, but he is traveling all over the United States helping people. Yeah. And it, I liked it. it. It has this show throughout all of it. All three iterations, I think, has some pacing problems. It does not know how to keep the tension curve going. And maybe, and I've noticed that's something that maybe I'm just used to a a much more clip-heavy, I want to call it, editing style of modern stuff, where it, it cuts in a faster way and it'll splice an A and B story in so that you can't get bogged down in one for too long. You'll have to switch back and forth to the other and keep that, that interest going. But you combine that with this with this show kind of not playing the interesting thing of its magic here that first half was just grinding at times it was it was interesting stories i liked the potential they had some fun characters in it but it just was slow at times in a way that made me go oh i think there were a couple of things operating there one of them is definitely the fact that things were just paced differently then you didn't have the fast-paced editing, the um, the kind of story momentum that you see starting, I would say, in the mid-'80s. Another thing I think that uh, is working against it in terms of that pacing was there was a writer's strike that began, like, as the first episode was airing. And oh. I don't think they had the writing staff available to tighten up these scripts. So even for the early-'70s, some of these stories had pacing problems, and that might be why. That might be one of the reasons. Okay, yeah. Especially if you're if you're dealing with a writer's strike and you only have the the one story plot to to show, you stretch that out to fill your episode. Right. Instead of making something that has multiple threads going through it in the same way or keeps that interest going. I, I, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't once you said writers strike the the difference and the change halfway through makes a lot more sense to me now i don't know how long that strike lasted and how much of the series it impacted but i do wonder if that reboot in the middle of the season had any uh, connection to that now the stories didn't necessarily change a lot but the style definitely did and the stories you know, they're kind of predictable. Some of them are kind of unfortunate. There are very far too often they are. There's a young woman who's the MacGuffin. She's kidnapped or, or otherwise in trouble. And Tony and his team have to find her and, and uh, uh, get her back to her family or keep her from harm or something like that. It's, yeah, it's, it's young woman as MacGuffin. And, and there weren't other, otherwise not a lot of roles for women in this, it seemed to me. Bill Bixby, am, amateur uh, sleuth, uh, specializing in kidnapped ladies and guys with guns who don't actually shoot you. <laughs> right. Yeah, a, a lot of uh, uh, gangsters with very, very poor aim throughout this entire series. 
we had we had gangsters with very poor aim. We had people cutting open uh, giant iron doors with lasers at one point. I think this was Star Wars, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that makes me think they had James Bond in mind. When you've got the MacGuffin is some super weapon like atomic lasers or something that's been stolen, and that's why some the the daughter of someone involved in the the corporation that made this uh, is in trouble. So yeah, they they tried to throw in high tech when they could, and it sometimes it seemed kind of out of place. Sometimes it was awesome, like his wristwatch. I know you got excited when we saw that. <laughs> that now that's the kind of thing you need to bear in mind in terms of when this was, how old I was, and how new some of this stuff was. He had a digital watch. It was one of those cool um, light emitting diode uh, digital watches where you would you only have to push one button and it displays the current time and date in bright red. Oh, my goodness. I had one of those about 10 years later. It was plastic, not gold, like Tony Blake's, but it was pretty awesome. I'm looking at your watch right now, though, and that thing synchronizes to your phone <laughs> and can let you know when you have a text message, so... Yeah, I don't know. There are times when I, I would still trade it for uh, Tony Blake's digital watch. Well, just the amount of gold on that thing, yes, but, oh, yeah, that, <laughs> that is awesome. Like... That is a, that is a watch that has gone from being really awesome then to if you can pull it off, that's kind of awesome now. Right, it's, it's come full circle. So he had the watch. He had, or he had the plane. He lived on an airplane. He had the the white Corvette Stingray, which he drove onto the plane when he wanted to go home or go somewhere else. I, I, it's just, and, and of course, all the money to do all this. How cool is this guy's life? He had. He had some pretty cool clothes. He had his performance evening wear as a magician and had a really impressive collection of uh, leisure suits and coordinating uh, polyester shirts. He did. Which was high fashion at the time. Oh. But Bill Bixby, he's a handsome enough guy. He could pull that off really he, well. He absolutely could. And it, this is definitely a character where how Bill Bixby plays him is important in a, in the same way that he had to play, uh, not Bruce in that case, but banner as so soft, like so soft spoken at times. And so I don't want to get in this fight. I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to pass through. So that way he can wind up stuck in the situation and things go wrong and, they get Lou Ferrigno's screen time. In the opposite way, this character has to be able to be the guy you notice in the room. He yes. has to be able to walk in and just, Hi, I'm here. I'm going to do a thing. Your eyes are, are directly focused at me, which means either when I escape out the door to the side, it's surprising, or when my friends uh, who are you're not looking at, at in the back of the room help set it up so that I can help this young lady escape from the room out that door over there either one of these is equally impressive because you've been watching me the entire time keep your eyes here that's a very good point they make a big deal out of him being a magician and he's got these magician's skills which include everything from producing doves out of his sleeves to disarm and disorient a gunman to being able to pick locks and escape ropes and things but see, from scene to scene, the most important skill he has is just the showbiz skill. He, he can w be in a room with presence. 
and he knows I have presence. He knows I am a handsome man, and he knows how to use these, and he's, I am going to use these. I'm not going to be a jerk about it, but I'm going to use these. Yeah, it it is... It, it is non-offensively weaponized, com- like, confidence. Yes. Yes. And that is that is a very impressive thing, because it's not a thing that a lot of characters are written to have. In part because you have to have so much trust that you'll get a, an actor who can play that. And Bill Bixby can play that. And that, I would say, is is how the character maintains his consistency through these three different iterations of the... Um, of the series is there is the uh the the pilot that we were talking about which um i mean it starts out with with kim hunter going to a club where playing a a woman who's going to a club where tony is performing and then someone who's obviously on her trail and then somebody else who's obviously on the trail of that person so i think we've got kim hunter and we've got a a kim hunter hunter and we've got a kim hunter 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 (laughs) And it turns out that Kim Hunter's character wanted to talk to Tony because her daughter is missing. And it turned out that she was involved in a plot to steal this super weapon. And that leads to, I don't know that they really had 90 minutes worth of story, but it leads to some pretty cool uh, scenes of escapes and a chase with a boat and two boats and a float plane uh, uh, on the Puget Sound, I think it was, or Lake Union in Seattle. Oh, yeah. Very, very James Bondy stuff, but they did, did it well. It was fun to watch. They did it well, and I, that that was a bit that I perked up to watch because I'd kind of fallen into that zoning out mode from before, but they had they had some of these bits that would get you back into it. I, that one, and they used that one in the opening, that the, the first opening, multiple times. Right. It, it was an excellent shot. They spent a lot of money on that pilot in some of those scenes, so I'm not surprised they tried. They reused that to uh, to maintain the excitement about the series. Mm-hmm. Actually, thinking about the way that those first TV movie like pitches went and how it changed, there's also something very Rockford Files relating to this in terms of a, a counterpoint. It's the same sort of, I'm going to help you, and we're going to get into... A, a a tussle in the end and get this sorted out but if jim rockford is i have no money and i'm gonna fist fight my way through this problem uh our character here is i have enough money to magic trick my way through this problem right but they they have that same sort of of approach and type of story set in some ways and, of course, opening movies with planes. <laughs> oh, and in addition to all the cool stuff that Tony Blake has, that uh, or Anthony Dorian has, that I already mentioned, he's got a phone in his car. Oh, yeah. A little white flip, like a giant flip phone that sits in his car, and he, he can, like, make and receive calls from there. That was just it, it, mind-boggling when I was a kid. Like, where does the phone plug in? It's in a... It's a phone, but it's a radio. How does that work? That was so cool. Of course, I wanted that when I was a kid. the 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 car and the plane. That's all very toyetic. This is this is playset material. This is this is give us the the sets that you can use together and give us the uh, 
the magic kits branded for the show. So you can learn tricks and such. And his plane, the Spirit, had in the original uh, pilot had a black and white, very geometric black and white paint job, and they had the white Corvette. And that kind of stark color palette and the name The Spirit, I, I was wondering, is that a nod to Will Eisner and the Spirit comics? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe I'm just reading too much into that as a comics fan, but I'd like to think so. Huh. And his friends are cool. I mean, like I, we already mentioned Jerry. We mentioned Max Pomeroy. But Max Pomeroy, in addition to being this well-known uh, columnist who can command the attention of thousands, you know, both through his writing... He is also, he's like this radical who's like an atheist and an anarchist and a free love advocate and whatever you've got, he's rebelling against it in an extremely wealthy and refined way. But for for primetime TV, it's kind of an out there character. Yeah, I mean, he's picking up the phone to answer like questions about someone uh, that they're investigating while he's playing a game of chess with a a, a lady in in evening wear or or, <laughs> or less who's sitting there giggling on the other at the other side of the table it's like there's there's parts of this that read like you're supposed to be like really like oh this guy is kind of awesome and there's a little bit of me who's thinking with all of the James Bond stuff the guy that looks most like a James Bond villain is in fact our contact and informant you're right it's like as if Blofeld was was James Bond's best friend yeah which <laughs> which works it does yeah Max Pomeroy was a cool guy and another character we see a lot is his son I don't remember the character's name his son, who's kind of a research assistant for his father, but also for Tony. So he's the guy on the other end of the phone when Tony needs some information from public records or something looked up. And and he turns out to be an invaluable member of the team. And I like the fact that this character is, he's the character is in a wheelchair. And that's never mentioned. It's, it's just, not, oh, the big deal. He's got the disabled uh, 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 assistant. It's like, no, it's just. He's this guy. He's a cool guy. He's a smart guy. They don't even mention it, but they show that. And I, I like that kind of inclusion. Yeah, they're they're just really kind of. It it feels very much like a family of characters in that sense. There is a there's a respect and a trust that these actors are playing these characters as having. There's a we already know each other, so we're gonna get down to what we're doing right now. Instead of expositing the how we know each other to a room that is empty of people who don't already know. Right. They do occasionally throw a little bit of that in if they're introducing a new character and he's he's telling you know, if Tony Blake is bringing somebody to Max Palmeroy's house, he's going to talk about who Max is. But it's all very organic. I like the way they do that. Mm-hmm. They they When they don't have a situation like that, they just let us figure it out. And and that's that's excellent because it means that things like the character in the wheelchair isn't a a thing they deal with. It's not a thing that has to be dealt with. Yeah. And it means that characters can surprise you without seeming out of character or like they've suddenly shifted because it's just oh wait. Okay. This guy gets really angry when this thing brings up or this guy can get very invested in this sort of case. I can get behind that. I can learn that about him. Instead of being bothered with them saying one thing, doing the other. So we watched a few from that first half of the first season. Again, the plots were all kind of similar. 
There was one that was a bit different, and that was one where in order to help a psychiatric patient who like had no memory and couldn't communicate and had been picked up and brought to the hospital some weeks earlier, he was trying to find out what had happened to this person. And all they knew about this young man was that he was, he was very afraid of fire or the idea of fire. So Blake winds up going down to this southern county and dealing with the um, the, the local toughs and the local sheriff and, and strange goings on there. Interesting point there. The, the young man who needs the help is played by a guy named Mark Hamill. Oh, yeah. Who later went on to do some movies that we enjoyed. Oh, yeah. I mean... He's an excellent actor, and he and he does excellent in this. This is he plays this extremely well. Mark Hamill has skill. He does. It's a strange kind of role, and he doesn't have a lot to say in the first half or so of the the episode. Uh, but uh, he still he, he portrays that character extremely well. Mm-hmm. And and that that episode on its own did bring back some of that Project UFO reference in my mind. What with the the town kind of against our hero similar to that episode we watched of the other show where you get this this tension of everyone might be angry at me in right. the room and that can be great for an episode the fact that this show couldn't keep that going the same way mm, but it had that same sort of setup and that one definitely did have between some of the other actors putting in the performances they did and that background note to the entire thing definitely helped that one and another uh connection the nice old lady who shows up in this episode of the magician was also one of our first ufo contactees in the first episode of project ufo oh that was her that that was her oh goodness i'm making callbacks that i didn't even realize as much that's one of the fun things the more we watch these old tv shows the more we're seeing this whole repertory company of supporting actors who are in series after series so yeah, the lady who played Mrs. Gilpin in that uh, that magician episode also played a UFO contactee. <laughs> well, that works out. But yeah, that that first entire half has kind of one flavor, and then they they shift hard on episode eleven. They do, and we watched that one most recently. And that one, it was actually a two part story. It's as if they really wanted to reboot it, so we're going to start with another two hour pilot. And this was the. F- First of the episodes, all of those second half of the season episodes, the episode titles were all The Illusion of the the Fill-in-the-Blank. And that is a a flag for the fact that they're really getting more and more into the magic and the stage magic world that the series implies with that second half of the season. The first half of the season in the series will say that there is a trick to this. And imply that it is part of this thing. The second half will show you a trick and show you a camera behind the stage so you see how it's being done. Right. We did occasionally see Tony performing in the first half of the season, but he was always in a he's in a club in Las Vegas one week and he's in some place in Los Angeles another week and he's doing benefit shows on the East Coast the next week. Here He's got a residency at the Magic Castle in Los Angeles. I don't know if they call it the Magic Castle in the show. They just call it the castle. 
but the exteriors are shots of the Magic Castle, and the interiors are all sets designed to look like the Magic Castle does. And that, of course, is a club and restaurant performance space for, for, for magicians, and entry into the Magic Castle is kind of exclusive. And putting him there is interesting, because we don't see the plane again. No, no mention of the plane. Which, between the fact that in, I believe, the pilot in some of those first episodes, there was an issue of people kept trying to buy his plane, and now <laughs> suddenly he has this apartment, I think he actually sold the plane at some point. I guess so. He still has his friend Jerry, who was his pilot. It's Now he's a friend and assistant. So now he has this penthouse that is at the top of the Magic Castle building. And it's things like that Magic Castle set and that apartment and his friend Dominic, who's the proprietor of the castle, makes me think that it's this second half of the series that I saw when I was a kid. And that's what I really remember. Okay. It definitely has more of a flavor there that would make it stand out. I can see how that would work. And it's more about the magic. It's all a little bit darker in some way as well. It's not, I've got so much money, I don't really have to care, but I do. It's more like... He's more of a regular guy, and therefore things are on the line. I mean, yeah. he occasionally he's talking to Dominic about, can he get somebody to, to fill in for him on a show or something? It's like he's got a work schedule he has to deal with suddenly. As opposed to the first incarnation, he could have bought and sold the Magic Castle many times over, based on the amount of money they suggested he has. Yeah, now he's... like. It implies that so much happened in between there. There is a entire story of, like, whatever investments or whatever thing was giving him this supply of cash dries up. And he calls upon favors and friends and starts diving into the work again in a way. There's a, there's a, there's a transition here character-wise, but it's still definitely the same character and characterization as being played. You're very much trying to find some kind of continuity from the first half of the season to the second. And I think it was more like just, let's start over, guys. The illusion of continuity. Right, yeah. Continuity. <laughs> it's, it's, it's episodic TV in the early 70s. Probably half the people watching it have never seen it before. Yeah. I am very much used to, at this point, the streaming concept where shows will run things so constantly between episodes. Right. And certainly the differences are, are dramatic when we sit down and watch them on DVD. You know, the, the, full, the full quality of early 70s videotape uh, transferred to DVD. At least in most of these DVDs, we wind up with the theme songs as also the menu music. <laughs> so we had so much of that trumpet. We did. Just so you know, I might cut that out. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> Please do. And, um, oh, speaking of the DVD, it reminds me, at the, at the, the uh, opening of the DVD, there's this little message about the fact that this is a transfer from old videotape, you may or may not, and you're, and you're watching it on a better television now, so you may or may not see technical artifacts based on that transfer. That reminds me of the fact that a few episodes into the C, uh, the series... They add this voice uh, voiceover at the intro that the magic tricks you are about to see have been performed without any camera trickery of any kind 
by Bill Bixby, the magician. Because Bixby was a, a avid amateur magician. I think that's one of the reasons why he wanted to get this show made. And yeah, sure enough, they didn't use camera tricks and stuff. He did a lot of this magic, which is it's that that makes it fun as well. And when I saw this, I was a budding magic nerd, so of course it hit me at just the right time. But yeah, he, he's doing these tricks, and the fact that they added that in kind of says something about what was being assumed of the show, I guess. Yeah, it's so easy to to use camera tricks on videotape that they wanted to heighten the the that edge that they had and and then within the later season later in the season showing how the trick is done so much more there is a little bit more of a, a how-to an almost pen and tellery we're going to deconstruct this at times approach to it there is i think they they shy away from revealing any of the really complex tricks but but they do start to flirt with that. Let's show behind the scenes and give away how it's done, which was very unusual for the time. And there's a, in the pilot, there's this trick where with a bunch of smoke and such, it's a teleportation trick where he'll disappear from the stage and he'll reappear in some other part of the club across the floor. And then he'll disappear from there in a puff of smoke or shower of of sparks or something and he'll appear in another spot it's not that hard to figure out how that's done but i could have sworn that there was an episode that showed how that was done with secret passages and things and we follow him through these and i may be remembering something else and i'm conflating them in my mind but i could have sworn that at some point in the series they explain that exact trick but it wasn't in any of the ones that we've watched so far hmm but it definitely it's it, that's not a hard one to figure but the later se- season would have shown you it and so i can definitely see them going back to it just to be able to explain how that one gets done and the use of magic in the crime fighting for lack of a better term that i like best are the parts that remind me of well crafted heist or grift type stories like from leverage or i think that movies like the fx movies have a lot of uh, a lot, lot to owe the magician where like he's talking to jerry and they'll start using this shorthand you remember the such and such trick they've got a little two-word name for it and we did it at the so-and-so theater i want you to go set that up at this location and then meet me at this other location and it shows the depth of knowledge and teamwork that is behind all of this and that you can do really remarkable things if you've got enough forethought and enough time to set them up. You can do fancy things with doves and flash paper in at a moment's notice, but with a little time, you can really get the drop on somebody and do some amazing things. There's something that it reminds me of the movie Now You See Me which I think was a, a a nice, great movie. I didn't like how the ending kind of messed with it and how the sequel was, meh. But I liked that movie and some of its shorthand practice the thing, make a thing to be able to fit exactly this one part to turn this magic into heist is very much in here. And I can see this being an inspiration for how that film got made. 
I agree, and I like those movies too. I think they they get a bad rap from some people. I liked them. I liked them both very much. They are as accurate to the work of a of a stage magician as most lawyer shows are to the work of a lawyer, which is not very. But they're still just a lot of fun to watch, and I, I like them. And you're right. There's a there's definitely a a lineage you can trace back to the magician for this. Mm-hmm. So we haven't watched much of that second or third iteration, that the illusion of iteration of this. But I think we might go back and watch some more at some point. We we might have to, especially because it feels like such a different show or a different... It feels like a revival in the middle of the show. Talk about, talk about a, a, a magic trick. We've got a show here that literally faked its death in some ways <laughs> and came back in the middle of it and bypasses one of our usual endings by doing it itself before we'd ever even gotten to it. Well, you mentioned a revival. I think that's starting to bring us around to our usual questions. Mm-hmm. It is. So, our first uh, our first question is going to be, for a TV series, binge or no binge? What do you think? Hmm. This is tricky, because I want to say binge the segments big binge the sections of it watch the tv movie then come and binge the first half of the series then come binge the second half of the series because they're three distinct things enough that watching them in sequence is not quite right but they're in but they're interesting and there's part of me that doesn't want to say binge because it's just so slow like i guess binge on double speed like (laughs) Taking the time to go through and binge this is not going to be a a story per minute speed that might be worth it. The pacing actually kind of hurt this enough that I'm tempted not to say it. Yeah, I, I it pains me, but I'm going to have to say no binge. Because, well, if anything from our discussion and description of this intrigues you enough that you want to go see it well you don't need us to tell you to binge it go ahead and watch it absolutely but otherwise it you're right it is it is slow it is repetitive as much as it has some cool elements and cool scenes it's not going to reward someone in 2019 watching the entire series so i would say my general advice isn't don't binge this yeah it's it's good, it's influential, but it's not it's not what to go for right now. So the second question is revive, reboot, or rest in peace. Reboot. Yes, reboot. I want a reboot of this. I want them I'm not always a fan of Penn and Teller's work, but especially with that later stuff, I could see Penn and Teller coming in as consultants for actually the magic portions of this. There's something about this show that I loved the show castle when it was on. That was a show that had so much. And there's something about the character and the way it's set up. I could see a revival that takes a little bit of like that castle humor and tone at times and applies it to this with an extra set of people in the back to make sure the the magic is right. And a little bit from column a with the plane and the car or, or the, I have the car and I kind of regret selling my plane, but I've got the apartment and I, this is a home base that we can come back to and a set that we don't take down. And 
I could ha- see this being a lot of fun. I want to see this come back. So could I. I mean, there have been so many changes in the world of magic since the early 70s, and uh, there's always something new and interesting. And there are so many new takes on that found family of specialists that, that you can see in this uh, in television. I think uh, with the right casting and the right producer and consultant behind it, this could be terrific as a rebooted series. Oh, yeah. And better pacing, of course. That would be nice. Mm-hmm. And and especially also in a modern TV setup where the importance of an overarching season plot or a a streaming plot that is something that you're going through from episode to episode, I don't think it's very much a streaming show where it wants to be serialized. You want to have individual cases. I think so. But the idea of also being able to have this world of of magic and slightly turned up from the reality in terms of the castle and all of these places, I could see having a running story in there with a rival or a a person who keeps on escaping from him or something in his past coming back. There's a lot of fun that could be had now because the format would allow for such stories in the environment that this would would create once rebooted you're right we could have the episodic stories and still have season story arcs like you would in a modern series and that would work really well mm-hmm. how about this he's got there's a rival magician a guy named hoodoo who has a magic hat oh no and the hat is actually a gateway to a parallel world <laughs> come on you know Think about it. There's a lot to lot to work with here. <laughs> it's rings all the way down. <laughs> oh, I'm having flashbacks again. That's that's <laughs> that's why we see three different versions of the magician. They're all different parallel universes inside that ring that had captured the genie. <laughs> Dang it. See everything comes back to Lidsville if you are in the right frame of mind. Wrong. Wrong frame of mind. Oh no. Oh goodness. Well, I think that's all we're going to get out of Ian. <laughs> so I think that's it for this installment of the Bixby Boys, also known as the Intermillennium Media Project. Until our next episode, you can find me online uh, at the website MatthewFPorter.com. You can also find me on Twitter at ByMatthewPorter, or two T's in Matthew. You can find the website, uh, excuse me, you can find the podcast itself at... Um, immproject.com or on Twitter at immmpcast. And Ian, I think you uh, have regained the power of speech now. Yes, Where can I, people find you? I'm at itemcrafting.com or as itemcrafting on Twitter and most other places. Uh, YouTube and I think I'm itemcrafting live on Twitch. Things like that. Uh, yeah, but we're happy to chat about the shows that we've watched either on Twitter and the like or on our Discord so, yeah, yeah. Come talk to us, and we'd love to hear from you. And if you go to that web page, immproject.com, you'll find all of our back episodes. You'll find some stuff you can buy, like T-shirts, uh, a contact form if you want to reach out to us about shows you've heard or shows you want us to do. It'd be great to hear from you. And uh, we will be back soon with more uh, adventures in uh, in media criticism and questionable parenting. And Bill Bixby. <laughs> That's right. So in the meantime, 
go find something new to watch.